Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name is Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with one of the leading voices in branding, former professor and international speaker, Brian Collins. We chat about his origins, how to win every major award, and one of the original brands to cut through the clutter. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brian Collins. All right, guys, welcome all the way from Greenwich Village, Brian Collins. Brian is the chief creative officer and co-founder of Collins, a design company dedicated to creating experiences, communications, and technologies that shape companies and people for the better. Brian, you have been on my short list of future show guests ever since I started planning for this podcast. So thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's, um, it's really good to be here with you today. So my first introduction to you personally and your work was while you were still with the Brand Integration Group, and you spoke at the AIGA GAIN Conference in New York City, I think maybe 2004? Right. Sound right? And you are taught maybe 2005? I also spoke in 2009. Okay, cool. So I remember specifically from your talk uh, a specific thing about brand as a promise and the strategic use of a pirate flag. You recall that <laughs> bit of the talk? Oh, you saw one of the pirate speeches I gave. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the pirate thing. Okay, so, you know, I worked in San Francisco um, as a designer. I was leading um, Levi's business at Foot Conan Belding there. And, uh, I was, uh, and I got, at that point, we became agency of the year. I got what passes for a little bit of fame in the advertising industry. I started showing up in magazines and whatnot. And Ogilvy called me and asked if I wanted to start a, a, a design and innovation lab um, in, in New York City for, for, for Ogilvy um, worldwide. And so we were based in New York, and we were going to do all the things that traditional media didn't touch. Um, mm-hmm. Technology, interactive, design, environments, communications. Um, all sort of everything that is now considered main, mainstream would then, would then mean that this is 1998 was, uh, that was sort of a novel idea that design would play a driving role um, within an advertising agency. Um, but in order, the shift from San Francisco to New York was a dramatic one. I, I could still use work, words as a designer um, on the Levi's business, um, like hierarchy, sequencing, transition, typography. The minute you start using that kind of language at a New York advertising agency, then you get put back in the design studio because you're really an exotic who's really only interested in color and typography. So I had to come up with a metaphor and a way to talk about what we wanted to do as designers. Um, and Ogilvy was and still is, I think, the leading brand um, agency um, in the world. And so I had to figure out what one, how do you do with a, a, a New York City advertising agency where the, where the hallways are filled with fogs of testosterone? And then two, uh, storytelling culture, um, and three, a culture that you, that weapons that has suddenly weaponized language. All of a sudden, in New York City, which is not the same as San Francisco, we use these words like war rooms to to uh, to, to 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 describe meeting rooms, and um, all the language uh, of you know is target marketing, gr- you know, guerrilla marketing, viral marketing. Um, these are all the lang- this is all the language of warfare. And so I had to come up with a story that was felt so to do that. And, and, and in the middle of this, I, I said, we were so familiar with brands like successful brands like Target, 
Apple and Google and uh, Nike that we can't see how they operate. So I imagine them people think about a brand that they were familiar with that had existed for hundreds of years. And uh, and what the, my definition is a brand is a promise that's kept consistently over time. And so um, I had them close their eyes and, and I said, imagine that you're on a boat and you look out in the ocean and then you look through a spyglass and you see on the distance a, um, uh, a ship and you look at it more closely and you pull out your spyglass and you see that it's actually a pirate ship. And the private brand promise was that you're fine. <laughs> and that everything that happened from the minute you saw that private, like that logo was delivered. Um, uh, everything that was promised, like the, pri- the, the pirate brand experience was absolutely delivered consistently. And a brand does two things. One, uh, it tells the, c- c- the customers of the pirate brand experience, this is about to happen to you. But two, <laughs> people forget that everyone on that boat is first a sailor. You're sailors first. And um, you have to be really good sailors because you're on the high seas where it gets dangerous. But then when that flag goes up, it's pirate time. <laughs> So when, so when the flag appears, it tells people how to behave. And because it was so consistently performed between like the late 15th century and until the arrival of steamships, at least um, in the Caribbean, that all a pirate had to do is raise its flag and the sort of intended uh, – the victims would often drop half their cargo or their entire cargo and flee. Because once you saw that flag, there's a very good chance you're going to be killed. And because it was consistently performed, the metaphor was that that's how you get people to give up their money without a fight, which is as good a definition of, of like commerce as I've seen. But it, it went really well. I was asked to give that speech lots of places. I ended up giving that speech at a at a technology conference here in, in New York, and I ended up getting invited invited to make um, a presentation at the World Economic Forum at Davos because of that talk. So people liked it. It's it's become identified with me, and I haven't made that talk in about two or three years. So um, it's um, I'm glad people remember it. That's cool. Well, I, it was definitely memorable for me over 10 years later. So people remember stories and I didn't want to get up and talk about the sequencing of a brand experience. I just I will, if you tell a story, people like you, it's that 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 was over. Uh, God, that was uh, over 15, 16 years ago. You like or you remember that, um, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Now you, you remember that story 12 mm-hmm. years later. So. That's that was its point. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Seems to be working. So you um, yeah. kind of touched on a little bit of it as part of that, telling me about like how you got introduced to Ogilvy and all that. But how did you find your way into this whole branding universe? What was, what's kind of your origin story? My origin story. And I'm in my library and the book is here. I don't know where I put it. If you found it. Okay. When I was 11 years old, a friend of mine who was a friend of my father's was um an architect who worked at the Architects Collaborative in Cambridge. It was founded by Walter Gropius. I loved architecture. I went to his office. And a few weeks later, he'd come back from Paris where he saw an exhibit on the work of the Pushpin Studio. They had a very important exhibit in Paris at the Museum of Decorative Arts. And I got the book uh, when I was 11. And it was the work of Barry Zaid, Paul Davis, Seymour Quast, and a graphic designer, I think, who was in his 30s then named Milton Glaser. And so I was mesmerized to stuff. It was illustration, photography. It was amazing. I, I have it. It's in one of these shelves um, here. I was just looking at it at the other day. And it changed my head. And when you have one of those peak experiences in your life and you go, oh, I was mesmerized that's about stuff. And then, and then the architect said, Brian, I, I know how you like to draw. Um, you know, people build careers doing this. And that's – so I guess I became a graphic designer when I was 11. And my dad would 
get me copies of Griffith's magazine. Uh, the Lexington Library, uh, the Lexington Public Library that I grew up in, had a huge photography and art and design collection. So I was mesmerized by all of that stuff. It helps to have a neighbor who's an architect who works for Walter Gropius. <laughs> so fast forward your interaction with that one book to today, where I, I think your website says you've basically won every major award that there is. First of all, that's incredible. Like the, the list of things that you've been recognized for is amazing, but did you seek out to be in the position that you are now or where did you, how did you find your way kind of connecting all those dots that you sit here in your career? I think, so there's this idea called the adjacent possible that I really like, and it probably drove my career. It's probably best embodied by a quote by Saarinen, which is when I my master designed a table, I designed, or when I designed a plate, um, I designed a table. When I designed a table, I designed a chair. When I designed a chair, I designed a room. When I designed a room, I designed a house. I designed a house, neighborhood, a community, a city. I was always interested in the next thing. I was always interested in what's what's in the room that I already know. Um, and so I was always looking at windows and rooms and doors that were beside the ones that I was in that sort of propelled me. When you're a young designer, those kinds of achievements are really important because I wasn't convinced that I was the smartest or the ta most talented or God knows the most gifted. And you recognize that when you come to New York, when you're 18 years old, and you think you're hot stuff when you're in your hometown and you realize, oh, there are people who are infinitely more gifted. So I guess what I had to do was work really, really, really hard. Um, and when you work really hard, all sorts of other things happen. The other thing that happens is when you work really hard, you want to make it as good as you can. Um, then not only are you learning something, but whatever you put in the world, people, people start to recognize it. And I, I always always find it funny when everyone beside my mom, you know, sees my work or my brothers and sisters, I for them. Um, and they always like what I do. But when I hear other people do, then I'm always kind of flattered and always a little surprised. But always happy because I, I, I want people to enjoy and uh, share with the things that we you know we do here at uh, at our company. One of the things that I was excited to see on your site and your portfolio was your work for Spotify. So can you tell us a little bit about how that relationship came to be and kind of what the that brief looked like? Sure. Um, Spotify is a, a remarkable brand that it, it achieved all sorts of um, acceleration um, in the streaming music space. They came to us when they were at a bit of a crossroads. They were an engineering culture and they had created an interface design that was successful, but they took an advertising agency's approach to sort of integration, which is whatever the most famous app, you know, system is, you take that and you apply that everywhere. And that goes on design, it goes on uh, advertising, it goes on communications, it goes on environments. And it's a very limited system to sort of design and sort of art directed by really good, well-meaning engineers. But it, they wanted to move from a brand, successful brand of early adopters, and they wanted to become, they wanted to get scale. And they wanted to be a, you know, a leader in the music space, both as a promoter and a part of that community, advance the entire music community and not just listeners. So they didn't feel and look like music. They looked like really smart product engineers. And so we said, how do we keep both something that's grounded in your incredible product design and the amazing um, experience that you have with, with the Spotify interface? And how do we make that more musical? How do we give it more musicality and freshness and inventiveness and spontaneity? And so we looked at uh, musical cues. Here's the puzzle. They get all these images from either Warner Brothers or uh, Def Jam, where they have to where they use the same images that every other brand sort of uses. Mm -hmm. uh, shot of Justin Timberlake or Kanye West. 
And we always wanted to make sure that the imagery that we were working always felt like Spotify imagery. So we looked at what brand in history, in music brand, we were able to both see the, the performer as well as the brand that it lived within. So and that we looked at the work of the of uh, the Fillmore West and all the amazing posters that they were doing in the 1960s. They used duotones, tritones and fluorescent colors. And so we developed a filter and a philosophy around color where we took really famous images and we from these performers. Um, and then we developed a interface and a new, we coded a new software program called the Spotify Colorizer. And instantly you can take any photograph you get from Warner Brothers, drop it into the, the colorizer, and you can either do it custom uh, with a series of colors that we fine-tuned, or you could you could do it you'd randomizer. And you could instantly create the kind of an image that would be Spotify's image. And it, it reduced the amount of time that people spent from like two and a half days to like uh, a few hours, which freed up the creative people to do the kind of work they really wanted to do, which was about building new relationships and creating new new systems, not freaking out, you know, not spending two days and trying to figure out what the color of a banner should be. So by using technology, we're able to unleash the creative people to get the stuff that needed to get done out the door and then allow them to focus on the more creative aspects of the brand. And that's, that's what happens when you put a technologist, a coder, a graphic designer, writer, and strategist in the room from the beginning. And we built teams very differently than we would have built them 10 years ago, which is technology and sort of, uh, uh, and media plays such a huge role in the way brands are built that that's we purpose build our teams using technologists, media strategists, brand strategists, as well as uh, designers um, and writers in in, um, in this mix from the beginning. And that's how we did it with Spotify. And we continue to work with them. You know, two years later, we just um, did a bunch of development work on the opening of their um, of their brand in uh, Japan. Great. And the design systems and the design system still works. The other thing that was really important is all the graphic designers at Spotify had a very limited palette. It was like black and green, or it's green and black, or black and green. When you let them give this sort of much more expressive vocabulary, all of a sudden the designers are more empowered to create stuff that is personal and also, I think, more unique to each of the puzzles they were facing. It just wasn't the sort of the old school advertising agency of sort of matching luggage, like and a brand like spread like stale peanut butter over everything. Spotify is much more vibrant, much more expressive, and it's much more able to respond to you know, the day-in-day-out requests rather than just one sort of Teutonic look. Sure. Well, it definitely frees them up from the black and green to have a larger identity system that things can work within that no matter what the color is, you recognize that and you see that immediately as a Spotify image. Yeah. And they're a remarkable client. And like most clients who sort of live in the technology space, they make big decisions, big bets, and they move fast. We love working with clients, and most of our clients are those who want to move fast. They want to move faster than the culture, because if you're not changing fast, if you're not ahead of the culture, then you're way behind it. Fortunately, our clients, um, if they're not ahead of the culture, then they want to get there fast. So, Brian, most of the guys that we've interviewed on the show find that they are obsessed with something. What would you say that you are most obsessed with right now? In addition to the, the clients that we have, we've been really lucky to work with like Spotify, Target, uh, Coca-Cola, uh, Facebook, EOS, um, that we um, adore. We were asked to two and a half years ago to work at the Museum of Moving Image on an amazing project. When I was a kid, one of my heroes was um, uh, Jim Henson. Actually. Kermit was, and the work of Jim Henson, when I was a kid, blew me away. I first saw it on Sesame Street and I was just mesmerized. And he did so many things in film. He was a filmmaker, he was a designer. We, 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 we're reproducing part of the nightclub that he designed in New York City that was ne- that's never seen the light of day. 
and uh, we're working with his films. We have over 400 artifacts. We're jamming into a space that really should have 100. Everything from Big Bird to David Bowie's costume from Labyrinth to a Skeksis from The Dark Crystal, from um, all of the, uh, many of the original uh, Muppets from Sesame Street, including Cookie Monster. We're, we're covering his early works, his experiments he did at the very beginning of his career, the creation of the Muppet Show, um, the design of Ses- and the creation of uh, Sesame Street, and then which he was crucial and to, and then also the design of, of his immersive books, like the films that he worked on. Um, and that has been a privilege to work with him, to work with the Henson family. That's been a, a passion project that embodies uh, all the things we're liking to do, which is storytelling, technology, and intense immersive environments that are also responsive. So we're developing a lot of new IP around what it was like to actually work for Jim Henson. So you, you'll be able to create a puppet character while you'll, you'll be there. You'll also learn what it was like to actually do performance on television. One of my, fa- I didn't know you were gonna ask this question, but one of my favorite things was that when we won the assignment, a member of my team actually was a puppeteer and he learned how to do something called the Henson stitch. And that's where you make felt, you actually make sure you don't see the seams in the face. So. Okay. So this was actually in the library. It was around the corner because um, we just had a meeting with the, the Muppet people. And um, this, is, mm-hmm. this is the other version of me that was um, <laughs> created. That's so awesome. <laughs> uh, that was created for uh, the show. And so we're very happy to be able to do this. So for those of you listening just via audio, Brian has busted out the Muppet version of himself, who is also gesturing and presenting <laughs> on video here, which is just absolutely delightful. <laughs> well, it's a great puppet. It, it, it's it's a, the benefit of having a puppeteer in your office, particularly when you're working with a, you know, a client like uh, the Hansons, is they recognize that you might be an eager member um, of their tribe. So anyway. <laughs> did this puppet exist as you were pitching the work or did that? Uh, no, uh, no, Brian did not exist. That was a gift that was made by Josh Smith, who was a member of my team. He gave it to me for my birthday. So I was, I was really happy with it. That's awesome. So when does that show go, uh, that exhibition go live? It it opens up, uh, if everything goes well, this winter. Oh, excellent. Well, I know that we are about to bump up against a important client meeting that you have scheduled. So appreciate the time that you were able to give us today. I hope that was helpful. I I didn't think you were expecting to see the puppets, but (laughs) really good being able to spend the time with you. Thank you very much. Well, maybe before I let you go, do you have a, if you want to continue, if you want to do the second part of this interview, I'd be happy to do that. Oh yeah. Let's let's, we'll definitely get you on for a part two. So before we let you go, tell people where they can track you down online. Uh, You can track us down um, at wearecollins.com. You can track me down on Facebook and you can, um, uh, and you can also watch our like Twitter feed and people seem to like um, our Instagram postings. So, but we are Collins.com is where you can find us most of the time. Well, Brian, we will definitely take you up on episode two. Uh, thank you for your time today. And thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, boys and girls, that's episode number 39 in the books. Much like myself, the show is almost up to 40. It's hard to believe that we've made it this far. Thank you so much for helping us grow this show and our listener base. Would you do me a favor this week? Tell one of your closest design friends about the show and tell them why you listen. And if you want to do some extra credit, tweet to me the name of another amazing designer that you'd like to hear me interview next. I'm at Josh Miles. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon a branding agency located on the 13th floor of beautiful Circle Tower in downtown Indianapolis. 
hit up our Instagram account this week. We are at Miles Herndon. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe, and our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.